Hey, it is good to be here. It is good to be with all of you. My name is Eric Wakeling, pastor here at Calvary. Yeah, I, it's just, I, I've been just loving being here today. I wasn't here last Sunday down in Mexico serving with a house building trip with about 150 of our Calvary friends and some others. And it's just so awesome to, to see the body of Christ really doing this this great work of just loving those who don't have. And I went from there to the next day left for Guatemala. And I was down in Guatemala for about five days with Compassion International, who serves children in extreme poverty. And we're going to start talking today about what's the point, or we've been talking about what's the point. We're in this series, what's the point. And let me just tell you, even this is outside of the sermon, but you get yourself around people who are living in extreme poverty and love Jesus with all of their heart and with all of their passion, you will start to really understand what's the point. And so I encourage you, if you are not putting yourself in situations where you're serving those that are part of what we call the least of these, those who don't have, that put yourself in that situation if you're struggling with vanity and meaninglessness in life, and you will understand deep meaning very quickly. So that's, uh, that's bonus points, all right? Now, today, what's going to, I think, really be interesting too, is then today we're talking about what's the point of work and to see people even working really hard and really hard to care for their families is that gets me quickly into what's the point. And you know, a lot of us, we, we have these views of, of work as work is making money, that's going to be meaningless Work is getting wealthy, that's going to be meaningless. Work is living out your passion, let me tell you, that is going to be meaningless. But we find meaning in seeing the kingdom of God flourish and the kingdom of God furthered and his creation made to thrive and flourish. When we join and partner with God in that, that's where we're going to find ultimate meaning. So it's maybe a little bit of a fast forward to the answer. Let's take us back to the question as we look into this passage. So if you're not there yet, look at Ecclesiastes. It's actually Ecclesiastes 2, 18 to 26. Uh, and uh, it's page 478 in the Bible in the back of the seat in front of you there. It's right after Proverbs. Uh, you'll get there. Ecclesiastes 2, 18 to 26. And, uh, you know, we've got this this, the preacher, as it's called, the preacher talking about all these different things that are meaningless. But let's, uh, let's, let's seek the meaning in it. So let's, let's read the passage. Uh, it says, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. Let me pause there and define a couple words. Okay, labor. Where it says labor here, this is a Hebrew word amal, which means more of like toil, hard work. Okay, this is toil and hard work. And then he says, which I labored under the sun. It's super important for us all throughout this book to be like having an understanding of when it says under the sun, it says it throughout the book. That's meaning under the sun means a world in which we are not including God. A world in which we are not consulting God or God is not part of the decisions we're making or the actions that we are doing. That's what it means when it says under the sun. And then it will say all of that is what is ultimately vanity, emptiness, meaninglessness. Okay, so let's continue. Uh, he says, which I'd labor under the sun for I must, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. 
Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there's a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to the one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. Stress, people. You've got this like ancient description of stress and not being able to sleep because of your work. I think that there's some hands that could be raised about relating to that. Am I right? Okay. He says, this too is vanity. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. We'll talk more about this, but eat and drink here is just sustenance. It's not partying. It's not pleasure. It's just getting food. Okay. It's just nothing better than to get food, tell yourself that your labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who's good in his sight, he's given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner, he's given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. All right. So there's some stuff to break down in there. There's some stuff to talk about. But, you know, within this, he says, death Or he says, labor in itself is meaningless. And death is instantly on his mind. Okay, he's thinking about death. A lot in this book, he's thinking about death. Because he's thinking about legacy. He's thinking about what's next. What's going to happen to all of this after I'm gone. And so there's this sense that labor is meaningless. Work is meaningless. So why? Why is he saying this? So for him, he's making this case that, one, it's, well, who takes it over when I die? Okay, I don't know who's going to take it over. It's going to be somebody that's an idiot, you know, and it very well could be. He doesn't know if it's his kid. He doesn't know if it's someone taking over his work. He doesn't know what's happening. And so who takes it over when I die? This, this whole thing of legacy is a big, big concern for him. And then he also says, all right, well, I worked hard, but the person taking it over They didn't do anything. They didn't work hard. They didn't do anything to deserve all this. Why should they get to take over what I worked for, right? And uh, within that, uh, there's a Forbes study that talks about uh, businesses that have been built, and it's been a family business, this business that's built, and, and, and the success of that remaining in the family. And it says that 70% of businesses don't make it to family ownership in the second generation, okay? 70% don't make it to the second generation, and then 90% don't make it to the third generation. And those are stats that are, it's like of what is happening today, that that doesn't make it, that this building up of wealth doesn't produce hard work and a sense of ownership in that next generation. And sometimes that's cashing out and whatever, and that's, you know, what people need to do is sell. But, but this, this whole thing is, is there. I was actually this week, so in, in Guatemala, it was kind of crazy with like 20 pastors with compassion, kind of giving us a sense of what they do down there. But um, part of who was leading the trip with us was Dr. Henry Cloud. Maybe you've read some of his books, he wrote Boundaries. And I'm just like, one, you know, I'm finding myself at breakfast with just four people around a table, and one of those is, is Henry Cloud. You know, and we're talking about this, and we get, we actually weren't talking about this passage. I know I'm teaching this passage. And 
he, I don't even remember how we got there, but he started sharing this, this, what I guess is like an old quote, something that's been around of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves by the third generation, okay? That people will go from, you know, all you've got is your shirt sleeves and you've got to build it up from nothing. You'll, it just goes from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves by the third generation, that there's a real difficulty in people being able to, like, maintain even wealth. And he actually works with these, like, big businesses that are big family businesses and these wealthy people to try and help them, help their kids not just become these entitled kids that don't work, right? And, uh, and, and that's a hard thing to do because you see that this sense of purpose and meaning doesn't come hand in hand with being given everything for nothing, right? And so we see that and we see this is going on even uh, in, <laughs> even here we've got thousands of years ago in, in this. And, and we see, you know, McDonald, the McDonald family doesn't own McDonald's. Papa John doesn't run Papa John's, okay? Like this kind of stuff. George Lucas doesn't have control over the movies that are coming out anymore. And so you could have built something and you might have cashed out, sure, but this stuff isn't passing on. And so you've got this, the preacher saying, hey, this is meaningless. Like, why should I do all of this? And then he says in 22, 23, all this work, all this toil just isn't worth the pain and the stress, that thing of just saying, like, my mind is just keeps going at night, and I've got this stress going on in my life. And I'm sure that could be one of the most relatable passages in the entire Bible. I mean, we've got that, right? We've all got some of that kind of thing of what we wake up in the middle of the night over. And a lot of times, that's sort of work stress. And, like, is all of this really worth it? Is all of this really worth it? There's a Bloomberg article that talked about how... Uh, middle age misery peaks at age 47.2, okay? Middle age misery. So I'm at 45.5, so I'm a little worried, but hopefully, <laughs> you know, but uh, they even talk about how kind of like midlife crisis, it's not the red sports car as much anymore, but it's like yoga and meditation retreats and <laughs> triathlons. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh no, I'm 45 and a half and I'm having a midlife crisis, I guess, because I'm super into triathlons now. But it's like this new midlife crisis is kind of being played out in, in that way where people are searching though for like meaning in different ways and trying to deal with the stress, the work stress that comes with some of that midlife misery. I don't think I'm in midlife misery. I love what I do, but we've all got the stress. Um, so... Uh, all of that, though, just saying that, like, for him, is it really worth it? Have you ever thought about your job, your work? Is this really worth it? Does this have any meaning for me? Is it worth all of this pain? Who's going to take this over? Will this last? And so what he says next, then, is, well, if labor is meaningless, pursue the simplest Things. All right, if you need to just kind of refresh our memory, look at in there at 24, 26 through 26. He says, there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good because this is from the hand of God, verse 24. And again, he's talking about 
basic food and drink, okay? Not, again, there's other parts. It's like eat, drink, and be merry. That's more of the pleasure, party, that kind of thing. But this is more just the basic things of what we need to survive. Kind of come back to that and see the good of how God's hand is in that and God provides for us in that. That all comes from the hand of God. You see, we're all, we're all trying, just we're trying so hard, right? We're all trying so hard. I mean, there's a few of you that aren't trying that hard. Don't get me wrong, okay? There's a few of you that could try a little harder, all right? Now, now some of us got to try harder, but for most of us, we're trying so hard and we're, we're working so hard to try and get what, like, we think that we deserve or we think that we need. And maybe we've missed the joys of the simplest things. And it's not just even work. I mean, you've got these overscheduled families who think they, they need to sign up and be part of everything in the world to be, have their kids involved in and do everything. And in the midst of that good intention, the family's never together. They're never spending time together because you're so busy doing so much. And, and we, we kind of forget the simplest thing. We want to just be together. We've got people who are just overworked overworked people that are really trying to just build money and wealth and, and self-dependence uh, and then in and all of that missing the simplest good things of time with God, time with friends, time with family and rest that God has called us to. You know, for so many of us, like we work so hard and we miss what is most important. And then there's overscheduled churches and pastors who have a program and an event for everything, and we forget the simplest things of loving God and caring for people. And we can be guilty of that here, definitely, and myself very much included, right? And so we, we forget what is most simple can be what is most meaningful. And I, I, I'm super into like cooking and food and like restaurants and, and uh, you know, I might want to call myself a foodie. I don't know if I totally am or whatever, but I love it. I love cooking. I love, I actually love doing the cooking in our family because I just, I love it. It's like, it's a great sort of just, you know, just kind of almost like thing to do that's creative and like kind of a release and I love it. So I, I love food and, you know, you've got this whole thing with, with like fancy cooking and all that where you've got this, this thing of fancy, ultra fancy French restaurants and uh, French influenced and it's like they've got the tweezers and 30 ingredients in every dish and it's like every little leaf and flower is like placed in the perfect place and you've seen some of that, right? And you've got that and that's like its finest of tasting menus. But then you've got this backlash that's actually gone on for a long time, but you see it in some older things like Alice Waters who opened this restaurant Chez Panisse in Berkeley where there's this thing where, and she's just like renowned chef, but it was a thing where she would just give people a plate with a piece of fruit on it. And it was like at its most perfect ripeness and the best ultimate piece of that fruit. And just saying like, this is food at its most simple and it's at its ultimate best. You know, get away from all that other stuff. And then even like there's this Netflix specials of, called Ugly Delicious that are out now. Ugly Delicious where it's like, don't deal with all the fancy. There could be this big brown stew and it's going to be so delicious. Who cares what it looks like, right? That this this thing where, hey, sometimes at its most simple, things can be their very, very 
best. And that's kind of like, I think, where it's going here with this is to get into the simple and appreciate that. Appreciate the simplest things in life. And that's where you see the hand of God in that piece of fruit, right? Rather than the hand of man. Um, And then... He takes us to then this verse 26, all right? If you need a reminder again, this verse 26 is kind of, you're like, really? I don't know, that's why I think when I read it. Because it says, for a person who's good in his sight, he gives good things. And then it's to the person that's bad, the sinner, he says, basically gives bad things. He gives the task of gathering, collecting, and then all that goes then to the good people, the godly people. But then you can't read that and you're like, I don't know if I actually see that playing out in the real world. Is that really happening? That, you know, just all the, all the bad people work and give all their stuff to good people? Like, I don't see that happening, right? And then it seems to be, you look even up at verse, well, first of all, it's like this sort of divine justice and fairness is not what Ecclesiastes is saying. It's not saying like, yes, everything is fair and perfect and wonderful. No, it's saying it's not fair. It's meaningless. It's worthless. Verse 21 even says, you know, like, I'm going to work hard and give this to this person that hasn't worked hard at all. That's, you know, it kind of seems in contrast to that. So you have to get into a little bit of understanding what it's really trying to say. And I think the ultimate point of this verse is that the gifts of God are eternal. They're not temporal. They're not for just the here and now. The gifts of God are bigger than that. They're wider than that. And they're more than that because he talks there about wisdom, knowledge, joy, and that there's this huge contrast between these satisfying spiritual gifts of God, wisdom, knowledge, and joy, with these things that are more of, of, of ourself and our own hard work that are amassing wealth and amassing money and amassing uh, more and more and more for myself, ultimately that will not last. That w- you cannot take that with you. It will die. But these spiritually satisfying gifts of wisdom, knowledge, and joy, that will last. And then he says, and what will ultimately happen is as it moves into a new heaven, new earth, and eternity with God, even what was amassed by these just building wealth, even that will go to those that are under God's hand, right? And so that's kind of what that's saying is just, all right, these are the most important things. And Jesus reiterates it in Matthew 6, 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, okay? That's what it's about. That's what it's about. Now, you can't, here's the thing with this whole Ecclesiastes series. Ecclesiastes is a crazy book, okay? Ecclesiastes is just like, hey, everything's meaningless and terrible, all right? But when you get into work, and we're talking about work here, well, we got to look at the whole of Scripture. Because remembering how Ecclesiastes is doing a very specific thing as wisdom literature and what he's trying to say under the sun and all of that. But let's look at the breadth of Scripture. And as we do, what we see is we see that God is a worker. God works and we are created in the image of God. I love this passage, Genesis 2.8. It's in, you know, the, create, the whole creation story, the creation account. You've got Genesis 1, and it's, it's one telling of the creation account. And then Genesis 2 is another telling of the creation account that kind of puts a little bit more, um, it kind of puts God, it gives him a little more 
human relatability, okay? <laughs> and even the way it talks about God creating, it says, the Lord God planted a garden, okay? The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. And you think about God as planting a garden, God as a worker, God as a gardener, okay? And so I want you to hear this, like, if you are a gardener, you are the very first job of God. If you are involved in that whole realm in any way, that was like the core part of God's job. That is a job to be honored and cherished. Okay, it's really cool. Um, but so you have this whole thing of just the whole creation story where God works for six days and then he rests, right? He shows us the Sabbath rest. And what does he do in his rest? It's kind of like God just kicks back. And he looks at, what he, at his work and just like, yeah, that was good. That was very good. That's what God says about the work that he did. He's kicking back, resting, looking at the good, hard work. Because God is an artist, a designer, an engineer, a builder, an ecologist, a zoologist, a horticulture expert, a musician, a gardener, a farmer, a poet, a king, a shepherd, a carpenter, a stonemason— God is a worker. We see it throughout the scriptures. God showing the value of work and of hard work. And you are made in the image of God. And as you do your work, you are living out that image of God in you. And to recognize that and to see that. And God, you know, he could have set up the world to be where just food falls from the heavens and we just get it and we don't have to do anything. I mean, we saw him do that while the people of Israel are in the desert. Manna falling from heaven, this bread, they just get to eat it. And it didn't work out. Okay, it wasn't a good thing for them just to be handed their food. People would get entitled, people would store up, people like weren't working for it and it got off. So God says, no, 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 you are to work for this. I want you to do this and there's value in it. Um, I don't know if you know this, but there's, uh, if you study kind of like the ancient world, you'll see that there are other, uh, in other like religions and other cultures, they have their own creation, like mythic accounts, okay? And there's one of Babylonian Empire, one of the greatest empires of, of all time, had their creation epic called the Enuma Elish. And the god Marduk is his name. And Marduk was like the way that uh, it even happened was Marduk didn't want to do work. Marduk wanted to create people so that people could work for Marduk. Okay, that was the whole point. And, and so this whole creation account is based on the gods are lazy, create people to do the work for them and to serve them in that way. And, and others, I mean, some of the Greek and Roman pantheon kind of takes you along those lines as well. But you've got this, this now, the God of the Bible starts off the whole thing with God as a worker. God working and then resting. If God needed to rest, there was work, right? And God showing all of this. And so God's like, example as a worker and that we get to partner with him in that work is the example of the God of the Bible. And so we see this. I think that should be seen then as a beautiful thing. Um, I'm about to share a story that's going to be embarrassing to me a little bit, okay? And it's not about me, but it's just because it's from a book. I read these, like, nerdy sci-fi fantasy books, okay? And 
you could just find, just like make fun of me. I was, I didn't even, I didn't even put the, I didn't put the cover up here because it's too embarrassing. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but I was reading this book. I'm actually currently reading this book. I read more important books as well. Okay, I promise. But I'm reading this book called Elantris by Brandon Sanderson, and uh, it's this kind of like fantasy novel set in like a time where this city called Elantris was this city that the people that lived within it were thought of as gods, and they had these magical healing powers. And uh, eventually, though, uh, they are plagued by this affliction that comes over them. And, and they eventually put this huge wall up around this city. And then sometimes people even outside of it would get this affliction, be thrown into this walled city. And what would happen is these people would, uh, they, their skin would get bruised and dark and wrinkly. And all of their hair would fall out. And they would uh, be hungry all the time but not die. Their hearts weren't beating it wasn't like a zombie thing, but like their hearts weren't beating. And I mean, kind of is, I know, I hear you, I hear you. Okay, but, uh, <laughs> but it's not like they're not trying to eat you or anything. Okay, but <laughs> their, their hearts stopped beating and they'd be hungry. They'd eat something and then, and it wouldn't satisfy them. They would get hurt in any way and the pain would never go away. So even if they'd stub their toe, that feeling would remain forever. So if they'd get cut or if they'd break their arm or they'd bite their tongue, that pain remains forever. And so eventually these people just become kind of insane, starving, filled with pain. And then eventually a prince is afflicted with... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, a prince is afflicted with this whole like this disease thing, this plague, and he gets thrown into the city. And like what's going on is that nobody's doing anything. Everyone's just like fighting each other. It's chaos. The place is just grime filled and it's disgusting. And everyone just eventually goes insane. And what's crazy is like what he does, he, he can't heal anybody. He can't do any of this kind of stuff. He can't stop the problem. But he actually, what he did was he brought purpose and he actually brought work into this place. And the people began to work. The people began to clean up where they were. They began to create some order. They began to figure out how to grow food on their own and to have this continued sustenance. And what was happening was the pain was still there, but they weren't thinking about the pain because they were working in a sense that had purpose to their lives. And so even, like, I think it's very interesting, and the reason I share about that is because I think that in our life here, we can still have pain, we can still have suffering, we can still have hunger, and we, but when we have this sense of work and purpose and meaning, we are able to see that God is doing something in us beyond all of what we see because our world is a mess because of sin, but, and sin has entered the world and cor corrupted the beauty and perfection of Eden, of the Garden of Eden, of how things were and the intimacy that we had with God in that garden. But it also corrupted the work that God had entrusted to us, the work to care for the garden, to care for the animals in it, the, that, that partnering with him. And so now God partners with us in some miraculous ways to bring to right that which has been broken, that which has been cursed, we partner with God then in our work to bring about, like to helping bring that back to what God had established it to be. And so that's what we're trying to do because work is not the curse. Work is cursed, all right? Work is not the curse. Work is cursed. And so we're blessed as we do that. 
But we can burn ourselves up. We can burn ourselves up for our jobs and we wonder, do they really have lasting value? And a lot of us think there has to be something more. And there is. There is. And I love this whole thing of um, a ministry that's from people in our church, of, of the master's program that helps people go from success to significance. Because just success is meaningless. Okay? Success in and of itself is meaningless, but we need to have significance in our life. And so I encourage you to consider that. And consider this, this quote. Okay? This is a quote from Tim Keller, uh, pastor, author. He, this is him defining work. He says, work is rearranging the raw material of God's creation. Okay, so God's just, we've got all this stuff in this world that God has given us, people, the creation, everything in it. It's rearranging that raw material in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular to thrive and flourish. So work is taking whatever God has given us in this world and rearranging it in whatever kind of different kind of ways that we all do to see God's creation thrive and flourish, to see people in particular to be able to thrive and flourish. And that's what we are to be about. So imagine this quote lived out by a farmer, by a builder, by a fashion designer, by a musician, by a medical professional, by a chef, in all these different ways, we're rearranging the raw materials of God's creation to help people thrive and flourish and to help God's beautiful creation to thrive and flourish now. But some work, some work is destructive to people and to God's creation. So not all work has value if it is destructive to people, okay? And so that's important. So we need to be thoughtful to what we would devote our entire lives to. And maybe your job isn't your passion, you know? Your job isn't your passion. So you're just living for the weekend, so to speak, living for the next paycheck. I want to encourage you to consider how, even if you're working in a job that has you just living for the weekend, then how can you leverage that to make your weekend more meaningful, to make that time away from your actual job time at work more meaningful, and how you can help the kingdom of God to be furthered and God's, you know, God's creation to flourish even outside of your work time. And so we have to examine what we do and how we can do that. Um, there's a book by a guy named John Mark Comer called Garden City. And some of these thoughts are from that. And he has this great quote that says, The garden, the Garden of Eden, the garden was never supposed to stay a garden. It was always supposed to become a garden city. You're like, wait, what? What do you mean? Okay, here we go. It's a garden-like city called New Jerusalem. When you look, you got the Garden of Eden... And you go, that's at the very beginning of the Bible. You go all the way to the very end of the Bible, the last couple of chapters of Revelation, you see this new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth. That is where we will spend eternity. We don't just go to heaven and stay in heaven forever. God is establishing a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. We will spend eternity in a new Jerusalem with walls and gates and streets and dwellings and art and architecture and food and drink and music and culture. And all of that includes us partnering with God in work 
as that continues on for eternity. Work doesn't end. Work is important. We have purpose and meaning in our work. And so I want you to see that, that our work is to see God's creation flourish, God's kingdom furthered, and all of our work can lead toward that ultimate sense of meaning. And so as you process this, to recognize that no matter what, I want us to recognize, no matter what, even like Bill Gates with his billions and billions of dollars that is trying to like make a good impact in the world with it and the way that he is choosing to, he can't solve the world's problems, okay? We can work hard and we will not solve the world's problems. We can't bring everything to rights and heal the world ourselves. We cannot bring salvation. We cannot bring peace. We cannot bring hope. That it is only through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that that ultimate, ultimate hope and salvation will come. But what we do in our work and in our lives is join in and partner with God to see that which he has created to flourish and thrive, especially his people and his kingdom. And so reminding us again, how does this whole book of Ecclesiastes end? This whole book about saying everything's meaningless? He says... In 1213, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person, it says. Fear God, keep his commandments, follow, live your life in the way that God has called you to through his word. And that includes in your work. So as we sort of have a chance to respond today, as we have a chance to come up to the stations, as we have a chance to take communion, to be prayed over, all that stuff too, if that stuff's weird to you, on the back of the outline, you've got, that kind of describes all of these, even giving and all of that, just kind of like, what are we talking about, okay, when we say that? What is communion? You can read more about that there. But as we sing, as we do all this, just consider and think through, like, what is my work? And how does my work help the creation of God thrive and flourish to help his kingdom be furthered and to help people. And how can I make it more about that and to move from success or lack of success for, you know, for some of us. And it's hard and we're stressed about that and move from that to significance. And that's what God wants for us. And that's the point of work. And so as we sing, even we're going to sing a couple songs now. One is I Surrender All and the other is King of Kings. And I think even these songs can help us when we're thinking about work to realign our hearts and minds into the heart of God, that we surrender all to him, that God is the King of Kings. I'm not king. I'm not building a kingdom. I'm here to serve under the king and to serve his kingdom and to see his kingdom flourish, not my own. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, which is, I mean, so confusing at some points and so enlightening at others. And so ultimately, God, though, you show us what is this meaning of life and how we truly can find deep purpose, deep meaning. God, I pray that you convict us where we need to be convicted. I pray that you'd encourage us where we feel down. I pray that you would show us God, how our work can glorify you no matter what it is. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help each one of us work towards your kingdom come, your will be done, not our own. God, we pray for that. In Jesus' name, amen.